0: The service is focused on the cross, and the cross is a universal symbol of the Christian faith. In fact, when archaeologists do an excavation and they see a cross, they automatically conclude that it must be an ancient church. It's one of the signs they look for to determine whether it's a church or not. So tonight, on this Good Friday evening, I'd like to talk to you about the cross. I'd like us to explore why it's so central so crucial, critical to us, what it is and what it does. So my text comes from Galatians 6, verse 14, Galatians 6, verse 14, where the Apostle Paul says, "'But far be it from me to boast "'except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'by which the world has been crucified to me "'and I to the world.'" Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we even see how startling this statement is? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us have grown too accustomed to this phrase. We say it often. But take a fresh look at it with me. The cross and the Lord side by side, in one sentence, same phrase, the cross and the Lord, an instrument of death and the author of life, put side by side for us by Paul in a sentence, the cross and the Lord, a pinnacle of shame and the Lord of glory, side by side, a symbol of curse and the one from whom all blessings flow, side by side, a particularly cruel method of execution and the only innocent human being, a punishment for treason and the sovereign king, side by side. Do you see how puzzling, how striking, how confusing, how shocking this phrase really is? To put it in different words, the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ means the humiliation, torture, and murder of God. It's an outrageous thought And yet, it is an accurate description of a real event. Jesus Christ, our Lord, very God of very God, the only truly innocent human being, was put to death in an unusually cruel and humiliating way. If this doesn't shock you, it may be because you have never really thought deeply about it, or maybe because you've heard it so many times that you kind of tune out and you don't really wrestle with it. doesn't register. But the cross of Jesus Christ, the very phrase, the very teaching, the very, the very idea of these two things being side by side, the cross of Jesus Christ demands that we deal with its violent incongruity head on. We have to confront it. We have to see it for what it is, and we have to do something with it. And we must resist domesticating it. We must guard against becoming desensitized to its gruesome violence. We must not diminish the scandal of the crucifixion. Dorothy Sayers, perhaps more known to us As a writer of detective stories, was a thoughtful believer who sought to explain the gospel to the people of her native England. So, she wrote a series of radio plays called The Man Born to be King, based on the life of Jesus and broadcast by the BBC during World War II. Of course, all the religious plays had to be vetted by the Central Religious Advisory Committee. And one bishop on that committee, having read Sayer's script, objected to her use of informal dialogue. It seemed too direct, too undignified, too offensive to him. Sayers wrote a letter in response. Never pick a fight with a writer. They, they write a letter. She wrote a letter to the BBC, and this is what she said. She said this about what happened to Jesus about the gospel. She said, it is an ugly, tear-stained, sweat-stained, blood-stained story and the thing was done by callous, conceited, and cruel people. Shocked? We damn well ought to be shocked. If nobody is going to be shocked, we might as well not tell them about it. The scandal of the cross was a scandal, not a solemn bit of ritual symbolic of scandal. If the contemporary world is not much moved by the execution of God, it is partly because pious phrases and reverent language have made it appear a more dignified crime than it was. It was a dirty piece of work. Tell the bishop. Sympathetically yours, Dorothy L. Sayers. Now listen to what Sayers writes in the introduction to this series of plays, she explains this idea further. She says, "'God was executed by people painfully like us "'in a society very similar to our own, "'in the overripeness of the most splendid "'and sophisticated empire the world has ever seen, "'in a nation famous for its religious genius "'and under a government renowned for its efficiency.' He was executed by a corrupt church, a timid politician, and a fickle proletariat led by professional agitators. His executioners made vulgar jokes about him, called him filthy names, taunted him, smacked him in the face, flogged him with the cat, and hanged him on the common gibbet, a bloody, dusty, sweaty, and sordid business." If you show people that, they are shocked. So they should be. If that does not shock them, nothing can. If the mere representation of it has an air of irreverence, what is to be said about the deed? It is curious that people who are filled with horrified indignation whenever a cat kills a sparrow can hear that story of the killing of God told Sunday after Sunday and not experience any shock at all. So we need to allow ourselves to feel the shock of the crucifixion. Part of the reason why we have services like, like tonight's service is to, to allow us to enter into that story not only as spectators but as participants and for us to experience the shock of the cross to come under its weight, to be confronted with its cosmic scale injustice. And as we do that, we naturally ask, why? Why? If the Lord of glory died in shame, in pain, if the cross and the Lord are two phrases that ought to be together historically. Why did he do it? Our text answers our question with one little word. Our. It's not just the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not the cross of the Lord. It's the cross of our Lord. And as the Bible says again and again, Jesus is our Savior who died for our sins. We cannot understand the cross without understanding the truth of substitution. The violent incongruity of the cross can only be explained by accepting that all Jesus went through, He did so in our place. The cross of the hopeless sinner, that phrase makes perfect sense. The triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ, that phrase makes perfect sense. But the gospel takes the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and makes it the triumph of the hopeless sinner. All because He is our Lord, who died in our stead, For our sins, he took what was ours and suffered for it so that he can take what is his and make it ours. Once the cross is understood in terms of substitution, our shock is replaced by the more appropriate awe. This is what Paul means when he says, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I cannot boast in anything else. There's nothing else that, that makes me sing about it and preach about it and wonder at it except for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can weep over our sins. And at the same time, glory in the cross which gives us freedom from them. The cross must shock us. We have to start there. We have to see it for what it is. The Lord of glory dying for sinners. But that brings me to my next point. The cross can free us. It can free us. Paul says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross kills the world and frees us from its control. This is quite a statement that the cross crucifies the world. We know that the world crucified the Lord. But as the Lord was crucified, His cross, His death robs the world of its power and kills it. Biblically, the world is the whole system of values and practices developed in opposition to God. The world is sin-institutionalized and legislated. The world is sin-normalized and praised The world, quite simply, is the rule of sin. So how can I ever be free from it? I'm I'm in the world. I'm part of it. I contribute to it. I participate in its sinfulness. How can I be free from it? And yet we're told that the cross of Christ has crucified the world. It's taken its power away from it. It has exposed its ugliness. It has presented a much better option to our hearts. Listen to Jay Kim. He says, The cross is the great revealer, exposing the temporary stuff of earth and directing our hearts and minds toward the everlasting substance of eternity. Human value systems are upended. Worldly riches, pride in our self sufficiency, vain pursuits, all of these and more lose their splendor and shine in the shadow of Calvary. I think this is the key in our breaking our addiction to sin. The key is to see that there is another option, that the world loses its shine, it loses its splendor in the shadow of the cross. We must discover something more beautiful, more glorious, more attractive than the world itself. Thomas Chalmers called it the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. When a new affection comes into your heart and it's bigger and it's more beautiful and the object of your affection is greater, then the other one simply goes away. The awe of the cross has the power to expel the love of the world. Money loses its draw when we consider the riches freely given to us in Christ. Pride becomes unimaginable when we kneel in worship at the cross. Temporary pleasures of lust are exposed as insignificant and frankly not worth it in light of the inexpressible joy of the shared love of the Trinity. Praise of others feels underwhelming as we recognize that we are loved and accepted by the Lord. Guilt can no longer hold our hearts captive when we revel in the blood-bought forgiveness of the Lamb of God. Have you discovered the power of the cross of Jesus Christ to crucify the world and free you from its influence? When I survey the wondrous cross... On which the prince of glory died. My riches gain. I count but loss. And poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ, my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them through his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And this hymn, the one we, we just sang in the beginning, this hymn is written based on Galatians six fourteen, And it contrasts whatever the world has to offer to us with what Christ has already given us. And when you put those two things together, you realize that the world is simply not enough. And Christ has given us something much better. So the cross shocks us, the cross frees us, and then finally the cross should shape us. It should shape us. Notice that Paul says that not only is the world crucified, but I am crucified too. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross of Christ shapes the follower of Christ. In another place, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. This is how much the believer is affected by what happened on the cross, that we can say, I also have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When Paul writes these words, what you hear is, that his life is completely tied up in Christ. It is completely intertwined with, with who Jesus is and what he came to do. To the point where he will say, I it's no longer I who live. I live, but it feels like Christ lives in me. He died, so I died with him. And now I live with him. And I live by faith in him. Because he loved me. And he went to the cross for me. There's a great term to describe the life of a Christian. Cruciform life. Cruciform life, meaning a life in the shape of the cross. Cruciform life means that every part of our existence is explained and directed by the sacrifice of Jesus. The cross becomes a yoke which guides us sets our direction. We take up our cross and we follow the crucified. And so His cross shapes our experience and our perspective on work and family and worship and friendship and education and economy and entertainment and art and food and Politics and ministry and communication and every other area of life. It's as if we gather our life and we fit it in the shape of the cross. We just put it all in, and whatever doesn't fit doesn't go in. But everything has its place within the boundaries of the cross. I'm going to give you just one example of how this cruciform life is lived out in one particular aspect. And then I trust that you work out the rest of it as we live, as we apply this, as we look at any area of our life and ask the question, how can I put this in the shape of the cross? How can I submit this to the sacrifice of Christ? How do I see it in light of what Jesus has done for me? But I'll give you one example consider how the cross shapes our experience of suffering. When you encounter something difficult and painful in your life, as we all do, how should we handle it? The cross of Christ allows us to see God's goodness in the midst of our pain. This is how powerful the cross is. It can allow us to see God's goodness in the midst of our pain, right in the, not after it's done, but right in the midst of it. It shapes our pain into something good. Listen to Phil Reichen. The cross of Christ proves God's plans are good. The cross of Christ proves God's plans are good. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the most evil deed ever committed on this planet. At the same time, however, the crucifixion of Jesus was the best thing that ever happened on this planet. The cross has brought salvation to the world. If God brought the greatest good out of the greatest evil, he can bring good out of what seems to be evil in your own life. This is an example of how the cross of Christ shapes us and guides us and explains our existence. It's a matter of applying it. So as I conclude, I want to encourage you to cultivate a cruciform life rooted in the awe of the cross making use of the power of the cross and shaped and guided by the sacrifice and victory of our Lord. As we sing songs about the cross and then read passages of Scripture from the Matthew, Matthew's Gospel about the cross, let it get deep into your heart and let it transform you, let it shape you. Boast in the cross of Christ, as Paul did, because this is the only thing we can boast in. And if you're not familiar with the cross of Christ, its meaning and its power, I pray that you will discover the cross tonight, and that you too become a follower of the crucified. Let me pray, and then we will sing about the cross. Our Lord, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, Savior of the world, the one who came to help us, the one who knew, you knew, Lord, that your life was, was going to end on the cross in place of sinners. And yet, you came anyway. You came because of that. This was why you came. You came to become a sacrifice, a substitute for us so that whatever is yours can become ours, since you took what's ours and made it your own. Jesus, we are so grateful. And we pray that we would never, we would never move past the shock and awe of what you did for us. And then that awe, that the beauty of the cross would move us to accept your gift and to live our life according to it. So we would be people who are living in freedom of the cross living in the power of the cross, living in the shadow of the cross, that every event of our lives, every thought, every emotion, every intention will be held captive to the cross. Lord, I pray that even now as we we sing and we meditate on the cross and then as as we hear your word read and we once again enter into the story of Jesus, into your story, Lord, where you suffered and you died, really died. As we enter into that story once again, I pray that that would become our story. Especially pray for those who are not familiar with you, not your followers. Maybe this is the first time they're hearing this. Maybe that's something they've been able to ignore for many years. But I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the cross and force them to confront its truth. Holy Spirit, would you convert people tonight? And those of us who have been converted by your grace, would you strengthen us to walk in the way of the cross? We pray in the name of the crucified. Amen.
1: The shadow of agony. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand."
2: While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd With swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, Then all the disciples left him and fled.
1: Shadow of Accusation Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. But Jesus remained silent, and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and the coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit on his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you?
2: The Shadow of Denial Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man.
1: The Shadow of Despair. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then, when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. And he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for the strangers. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set, by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me.
2: The Shadow of Rejection Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any prisoner whom they wanted. And they had had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, He took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters And they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him, and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head, and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him.
1: The Shadow of the Cross As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way.
2: The Shadow of Death. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rock split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God.